Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Talbot. And I'm Matt Sanderson. In this episode, we're going to look at psychological horror. But before we get into all that psychological stuff, what is going on? GM signups are now open for the next weekend with Good Friends. This is, of course, the online gaming convention organised by our lovely listeners that takes place on the Good Friends of Jackson Elias Discord server between the 1st and the 3rd of March 2024. Sign-ups will be open until the end of day on Thursday the 8th of February. If you would like to offer a game, just go along to blasphemoustomes.com and we will put a link in the show notes to the sign-up page. Well, unsurprisingly, hearing both your name and the word unconventional come up in the same sentence, Scott understands there's some stuff going on with uh, various different groups at the minute. I did a guest spot recently on Unconventional GMs, which is a stream that Gaz from the Smart Party and Guy Milner have recently started doing between them. It's a really kind of focused RPG experience, and they try to keep the game down below two hours, and I think we just managed that in this case. So I ran Dead of Night for the two of them, and as special guests, they had Tasha from the Idea Role Channel, a Ukrainian gaming podcast, and Andrew Kenrick, who wrote Dead of Night. So I ran this little scenario that I'd run at conventions many times before in a very different form called Grave Danger, where the player characters are a family of mild-mannered ghouls facing eviction from their cosy cemetery. And apparently this will be going out on the 3rd of February. Speaking of Gaz, he has also just released a new Call of Cthulhu scenario on the Miskatonic repository called Burning Desire, which I am also hoping to run fairly soon. And now on to our main topic, psychological horror. Similarly to gothic horror, we tend to use the term psychological horror without analysing precisely what it means. So, how might we define this subgenre? What are some of our favourite works that fall within its definition? And how might we bring psychological horror into our games? I think of all the, the different types of genre that we've discussed, like body horror and gothic and so on, psychological is probably the least specific because you know psychology is the study of the mind and fear is something that happens in our minds so horror and fear they're psychological states they're psychological phenomena so really all horror is psychological but it is a thing of its own as well it can be a, a nebulous vague term because there's a lot of things that we're going to talk about that some people will say is psychological horror and some people will say is other kinds of horror. But there are a few things that we can narrow it down by to sort of pin down what makes psychological horror as distinct from other types of horror. But I think they're all on a scale of that can be debated. 
I'm sure we'll get into this as it goes on. I don't necessarily buy that all horror is, is psychological horror. I think psychological horror does have a specific meaning, and with any luck we'll be able to draw that out in the discussion. One thing I'll, I'll say up front, which again will probably come up again during the discussion, is that I think, like the term horror, it's something that... It's almost like a seasoning or, or at least an element of other works or other genres. It's the way that when we were talking, I think, back in our Appeal of Horror episode, trying to pin down what exactly horror itself was, we were talking about how it's often used as an element in all sorts of different kinds of stories. And I think psychological horror is that as well. It's an approach that we see in a variety of subgenres and a variety of stories. We perhaps occasionally see it specifically as something in itself, but it's more just part, I think, generally of a blend of elements that we see in horror. If we look on Wikipedia, it says psychological horror is a subgenre of horror and psychological fiction with a particular focus on mental, emotional and psychological states to frighten, disturb and unsettle its audience. The subgenre frequently overlaps with a related subgenre of psychological thriller and often uses mystery elements and characters with unstable, unreliable, or disturbed psychological states to enhance the suspense, horror, drama, tension, and paranoia of the setting and plot and to provide an overall creepy, unpleasant, unsettling, or distressing atmosphere. And I think that is the core of it right there, that it's the focus on the psychological states of the characters that perhaps sets it apart from, say, survival horror monster movies or something like that, where that might be an element in some of them, but let's say that you're looking at a survival horror film. Someone's being stalked in a remote location by a hideous creature and they're fighting for survival. We might every now and then touch upon what the character is dealing with emotionally as a result of that, but that is not the core of the horror. That's not the source of the horror in that. It's much more visceral, it's much more immediate, it's much more direct. But if it's psychological horror, we could have an almost identical setup, but perhaps when we'd see more elements of doubt in there about the reality of what the character is going through, their perceptions, the way that they're dealing with what they're going through. And I think that's what would turn it into psychological horror. What does psychological horror mean to you, Matt? It's a very nebulous, very woolly term for me because, particularly going back to the likes of the Wikipedia entry, if you follow a couple of links there, it says psychological horror is very similar to or overlaps with psychological thriller. You then go to psychological thriller and it says psychological thriller overlaps with psychological horror. Yeah. And it becomes this recursive loop where they're just using it as a buzzword that doesn't really mean anything. It just seems to be uh-huh. it's elements of what I would just call horror. It's what makes horror horror. Yeah, I think probably best to communicate this is is to look at some of those individual elements that if they're focused on more, it perhaps makes it more like psychological horror than perhaps we can contrast it with things which don't have so much of those elements that we might not call psychological horror. 
But going back to what you were saying there about the Wikipedia articles, Matt, I don't think that's very fair because it's not recursive. It doesn't say psychological horrors, see psychological thriller and vice versa. It refers to the similarities between them and links the two articles, but the definitions that it gives in each one are quite particular and it does actually spell out what each one is. If the psychological thriller article had just said see psychological horror, then that would just be recursive, but that's not what the article does. The two seem very, very similar in their reading to me. Yeah, because there are similarities, which is what they say. So I did write a a little definition of psychological horror for Dead of Night's second edition, way back in 2010. I'll just read a little bit of it out here because it might help. Psychological horror deals primarily with the mental destruction of its protagonists. A common factor is the disintegration of the barrier between the character's inner state and the outside world, with their internal nightmares apparently taking external form. Protagonists in psychological horror stories often provide an unreliable point of view, unable to differentiate between their fears and the real world. The ambiguity of this mental state, as the world falls apart around them, makes the story all the more unsettling. While some films and stories exist as pure psychological horror, it is more usually used as an element of another genre. Two very different examples of how psychological horror techniques can be applied to, say, a vampire story are Martin and Let the Right One In. In Martin, we have a protagonist who believes himself to be a vampire, but may just be a very disturbed young man. The tension caused by this uncertainty turns a simple tale of self-destruction into something quite disorientating. Let the Right One In, on the other hand, shows the effect that meeting a real vampire has on a psychologically damaged boy, taking him down a very dark path. Hmm. Been a long time since I've seen that. So should we dig into some of these elements? So the first one we have on our list is a focus on the psychological state of the main characters. Uh, this is something Scott's alluded to. So it's not just about showing us the monsters and so on. It's about the mental state of usually the protagonist but maybe the antagonist too so i think a good example of this is if you look at most people's lists of the top psychological horror films out there there are some which you could argue are much more pure psychological horror but i think one of the best ways of getting a grasp on this is looking at one where the lines are a bit more blurred and that's the shining Because The Shining, I'd say, is very much a psychological horror film because it deals with psychologically what the Torrance family is going through, particularly Jack Torrance, but the other family members to some degree, when they're in this pressure cooker at the Overlook Hotel, which is bringing out the worst aspects, particularly of Jack's psychology. There's nothing that he's going through in that that isn't already a part of him. The hotel is bringing those parts to the forefront. It's exacerbating his addiction issues. It's bringing out the resentments within the family. It's making him more of his worst elements. But that is, for me, what makes it psychological. The ghosts in that are a catalyst to the psychological horror, rather than it necessarily just being a straight ghost story. Probably because I read the book first and then saw the Kubrick film afterwards and was quite disappointed that he didn't include any hedge animals coming to life and uh, stalking people through the grounds of the hotel. Or, in fact, lots of the elements of the book that I preferred he just ripped straight out of the film. 
I think the film and the book become two very different things in my mind. Whenever I see the film, I just keep thinking of the book and going, well, that's not how it's supposed to be. Would you say either one is more psychological horror than the other? I'd say the film, definitely. But I'm always overshadowed by the book thinking, no, that the whole aspect of this and even the fucking title says it's about The Shining. It's about Danny's mm. psychic gifts. And it's about how that interacts with the world around him, such as the ghosts in the hotel, that the hotel itself is a entity in its own right. And seeing it through that lens, I'm, I don't think I've ever really got the full appreciate the full impact of the Kubrick version because I'm just constantly looking at it going, you know, you're butchering the original story too much. I've read the book first as well, but I think the film is a huge improvement on the book. The psychological aspects of it, though, are very much there in the book as well because I think this was, in a lot of ways, King perhaps addressing his, at that stage, what were perhaps incipient addiction issues. And that is still very much there in the book. And I think what Torrance is going through is very much a metaphor for the effects of alcoholism. Yeah, it's a very much King Standing character, and lots of critics and examinations of both the book and the film have made that comparison. The, yeah, Torrance is essentially King himself writing himself into the text. He sees Torrance as very much a tragic, heroic character, he doesn't see him as an antagonist, particularly. But I guess going back to psychological horror, whether it's the book or the film, you know, it's, it's at the core of both stories, I would say, is Jack and his deteriorating psychological state, right? It's an examination of a character as you slowly watch him losing more and more sand as the whole thing progresses. Well, I mean, that's what it means, right? I would say, you know, his deteriorating psychological state. Yeah. So... In part, the, the psychological horror can be a, or, or one element can be a study of someone's psychological state. If that's a, a key element of the film, then that's a, one of the uh, facets that, that makes it a psychological horror, I suppose. In a lot of cases, it tends to be people dealing with repressed trauma. There's, I think, very much the, the shadow of Freud that hangs over a lot of psychological horror, despite the fact that a lot of his theories have been steadily debunked over the years. I think his influence on psychological thrillers and psychological horrors is still very strong. I think it's just echoes in that perhaps the earlier works drew more deliberately on his work, and then later works drew upon those earlier works that drew upon them. I was thinking when you were saying about the influence of Freud there, at least it gives birth to one of the best lines in cinematic history, more from sci-fi than psychological thriller. But mm. uh, let me tell you about my mother. Bang! Yes. <laughs> There's this Norwegian novel I read a while back that's more... A, I'd say a thriller than a horror story, but there's elements of both, called Lake of the Dead, which was written in the 1950s by a Norwegian crime author, whose name I'm almost certainly going to butcher, so apologies to any Norwegians listening, called Andre Björk. And he very deliberately drew upon Freudian psychology to an almost comical degree, to an extent where I wonder whether it was intended as a parody, because he 
comes up with all sorts of explanations for some of the weird shit that's going on within this uh, something between a murder mystery and a ghost story that boil down to Freudian psychology. And I think if you wanted to see a snapshot of how that influenced psychological horror as a genre. Yeah, absolutely. Look at that book. And it was filmed, but I don't think I've seen the film. That or perhaps Hitchcock's Vertigo, I think, are the two bits of media that that bring those elements to the forefront. So another one on our list is unreliable narration. I think this is something we see in a lot of films, not necessarily horror films, but it can allow for that twist, I think, particularly, mm. where we, we think we're hearing a story and then we get that twist and we realise, oh, no, it's kind of like we've been played or the characters in the, in the film have been played. So there's that, that sense of unsettling, a sense of not really knowing what's going on. I mean, a couple of... I mean, I would say The Usual Suspects is an example of that. It's not a horror film. That is exactly the example that was going through my head. Was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a classic. I mean, another one would be The Sixth Sense. I disagree that The Usual Suspects is a question of unreliable narration in that sense. Because in that, I mean, it depends how you look at it, but that is very definitely someone lying to us, someone fabricating it. But I think in psychological horror, when we see unreliable narration, it tends to be from the point of view of deluded protagonists who are unreliable because their own perceptions of what's going on and their own perceptions, their their minds, their experiences are unreliable rather than them deliberately setting out to deceive us. Or it may be then something like Joker, where you then have flashbacks that go back through the film and show how the scenes yeah. really played out rather than from his perception of them. Yeah, Joker was another one on my list as well. Yeah. There's a book I read recently, which I must admit didn't blow me away, but I thought was still pretty good, which apparently has been filmed and I keep meaning to check out the film. I've been thinking about Ending Things by Ian Reid, which is one of the purest examples of unreliable narration I've seen, where it very much sets out telling the story initially of this man and his girlfriend going back to visit the family home for Christmas and and things seeming a bit weird, and then just this complete unravelling of identity and, and reality that goes on throughout it is all the constructs of this fabricated life just come tumbling in. And it's very nicely done. I don't think it's a particularly original bit of work. I've seen the same thing done in many different forms. But I think it's one of the purest distillations of it. So there's a film I watched recently. I can't remember if I talked about it on here, but Before I Go to Sleep with Nicole Kidman which I thought was a horror film. Then I watched it and it's classed as a, a thriller, probably a psychological thriller, I'm sure. And I, I did enjoy, and that relies on, um, hmm, I mean, spoilers, but some unreliable narration. But the, the selling point to me was that she wakes up every morning and can't remember her past because of a traumatic experience, which she can't remember. She can't remember what happened to her. And every morning she wakes up and her husband, uh, Colin Firth, has to tell her who she is and why she's like this and the fact that she won't remember all this again tomorrow. To me, it was a horror film. It wasn't like over-the-top horror, but it, I would fit it into the horror genre just. 
it's more about deception, but on her part, she's got a, a, you know, a psychological issue because she can't remember things. And I think that's an interesting aspect of psychological horror, which is that it doesn't necessarily have to have any of the elements that we associate with other types of horror. There don't have to be any ghouls or monsters. There don't have to be necessarily any killers. There, there doesn't have to be no. any death or violence. That it is inherently disturbing to be inside the mind or the point of view of someone who is disintegrating, someone who is unable to grasp reality, someone who is questioning or, or coming up against proof that their reality isn't quite what they think it is. That's why I think psychological thrillers and psychological horror are so difficult to pick apart, because you can say that all these things are thrillers because you know, there aren't any traditional horror elements in them. But at the same time, the effect is perhaps so horrifying that that just makes them horror. Yeah, I mean, if we extend like psychological horror to, to include mental health issues then you know, my experience working in in a mental health department and you know encountering and working with people who were hearing voices and having very traumatic experiences with that and at the time i was in my early 20s and that was my first experience of that and um i think it was horrifying to me to sort of think of how terrible their situation was and that you know that could happen and i kind of you know you can't help but think well that could happen to me just an illness i could get a physical illness or a mental illness and mm. just the the way it affected people's lives in a very negative way in those instances and some quite frightening experiences obviously that was all real world you know real world can be just as or more horrific than anything we can imagine but i think equally with that i think that carries a heavy caution as well that there's a number of films that play on that mental illness, that portrayal of mental illness as a psychological horror and do it badly, misrepresent it or represent it for, I don't know, salacious or exploitative reasons. I'm thinking of like films like, is it Glass or Shatter or Split? Split. Split. Yeah, I didn't like Split at all. That was bloody awful. That's the... Um, M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, Shyamalan, who's done some good stuff, but this one, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, it was very much about somebody with... Um, Dissociative identity disorder. Yeah, apparent sort of mental illness, but yeah, it was, it was just, yeah, it was just dreadful. It's always a difficult thing to address because mental illness, and I mean, this is at the core of psychological horror, mental illness is such an inherent part of the genre, not just psychological horror, but horror in general. Whether it's the trauma that characters go through, or psychotic delusions, or the actions of psychopaths, it's been part of the horror genre for as long as there's been an identifiable horror genre. Yes, there will always be dodgy representations, but... I think if you try to overcompensate, I think you run the risk potentially of undermining the basis for 
like 90% of the horror out there, there's a fine balancing act between being sensitive to portrayals of mental illness and losing it completely as an element of psychological horror. And I'm not sure where that that balance lies. But I think it's perhaps too easy to get tied up in knots over it. I think sometimes you've got to accept the fact that genre conventions are just genre conventions. In an episode or two's time, we're going to be talking, I think, about Psycho, the, the Robert Block book and the film by Hitchcock. And I have a lot of problems with both the book and the film. There's a lot of elements of it I find deeply unhelpful and deeply problematic. But at the same time, it is one of the foundational works of the horror genre. And if we were to discount that or try to move away from any of the elements in there, then I think we'd lose a lot of very good and worthy works. Like I say, it's just a very difficult balance to walk, and I think that's something that we're always going to struggle with in psychological horror, which is the things that make it effective as a genre quite often are things that aren't very sensitive to the reality. So next on the list, we've got delusions and the unreliability of memory. I think this can be uh, a great one. So, you know, again, we're being shown, it's a little bit like the unreliable narration. It's unreliable portrayal of reality uh, that's perhaps on the part of the psychological state of the the viewer. Or, sorry, not the viewer, but the uh, the protagonist, the person that it's happening to in the film. Something we see in Fight Club, right? That's, that's something yeah. that just springs to mind. Mm -hmm. And many of these things have horrific elements. I'd say Fight Club has some horror elements, perhaps. Mm. It wouldn't normally be classed as a horror film. Any good examples of films with that, that featured this, Matt? I can think of one that both me and you absolutely adore. Oh, what's that? He says with a, kind of as much irony-laden emphasis there as possible. And that's Roman Polanski's Repulsion, that film that we absolutely adored when we were subjected to it. Back I don't know why you bring that up again. <laughs> he can't help himself, Paul. While I absolutely hated that film, the thing that I agree it does very well is that breakdown of reality through the lens of her eyes. Like seeing arms coming out of the walls, seeing people attack her in her bedroom. I think it's a prime example of how delusions can work. But think of unreliability of memory actually had first prompted another example in, in my head, which again is more mm. psychological thriller rather than horror. And that's Deep Red. Because you have that scene oh. walking down the corridor at the beginning of the film where you have that snapshot yeah. of a woman's face reflected in a mirror. Mm. The protagonist throughout the rest of the film is going, you know, something I can't quite put my finger on all the way through it. But it is a blink-and-you-miss-it moment that, as you as the viewer, unless you know it's coming, you're almost certainly not going to spot it. Yeah. But there's that then hints throughout that he's he's touched upon something, he can't quite remember it or can't quite figure it out. And it isn't until you see him go back to that corridor and start to examine that particular little niche off on the left-hand side that he then suddenly pieces it together. And that, that's just the, the main example that came back to memory for me. But I think some of the most effective examples of this technique lie outside things that we'd even consider to be thrillers, let alone horror, and that's in science fiction. I think that Philip K. Dick was the master of this. In so many of his books, he constructs a subjective reality on the part of his narrator and then spends the rest of the book dismantling it systematically. 
in a way that I personally find at least as emotionally affecting as most horror and thrillers. If I think about the effects that some of his books have had on me, I have Vallis, for example, is a great example of this. Vallis, I think, is a psychological masterpiece. I mean, it's, again, it's got problems in it, but as far as unreliable narration, unreliable memory, and this this failure of, of subjective reality is concerned, I think there's so much you can pick up from that book. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think I could have written the scenarios I've written without reading Philip K. Dick. Yeah, I'd say he's as big an influence as Lovecraft, really. Mm. Then we got external manifestation of internal fears. This, I think, is a technique that you see in a lot of films that perhaps aren't necessarily pure psychological horror, but it's the way that a protagonist is perhaps wrestling with internal issues, guilt perhaps, and they encounter an external manifestation of that in the story. This is something that I think we see quite a lot in Edgar Allan Poe, for example, like in The Telltale Heart. The Telltale Heart is all about the protagonist feeling guilty or at least trying to suppress the intense emotions that he feels about having committed a murder and is just then being haunted by it. It's You could see it as a ghost story, but it's not really, is it? I mean, this is more your field of expertise, Matt. Yeah, no, definitely. I think you, you've hit the nail pretty much on the head there, that it is that manifestation, that guilt that just keeps boiling under the surface and eventually flips his lid. The one the example I was thinking of, not so much of a Poe example, but one that, again, we have looked at as an episode on the podcast, is the off-license that will not die in the ritual, that just keeps coming back for more every other fucking scene. But that is pretty much, again, the key thing it is that literal manifestation of that internalised kind of combination of regret, guilt, and terror and fear that he felt in that moment. I love how most of your examples, Matt, come from the things that annoyed you most because <laughs> <laughs> they stick in my mind that's why yeah yeah i know the feeling yeah for sure we carry on in the area of wanky ideas with monsters as metaphors all, or, all orcs are particularly horrible and racist is that where the territory we're going into or no i don't think so <laughs> no. that's allegory not metaphor i think i think we see this quite a lot perhaps in ghost stories that the ghosts are, again, metaphors for what the characters are going through. Perhaps the prime example of this would be something like Turn of the Screw, where you could argue that there aren't actually any real ghosts in that and that the protagonist is experiencing this haunting as a reflection of her own emotional state and and fears and insecurities. So maybe a twist ending where all our faulty perceptions about the story are stripped away, revealing a horrible truth. We see it quite a lot in films, sometimes to great success and sometimes not so much. I mean, we see it in Lovecraft stories. Well, I don't think we do see it in Lovecraft stories. We see the italicised ending, but it's not really a twist ending often. 
I think people think it's a bad twist ending, but it's not a twist ending. I don't think it's intended as that. It's confirmation. It was a mirror all along. Ah. But the twist ending was a good, I mean, spoilers here, but what's a good example of a twist ending? Well, I don't think we need to go into the details of why it's a twist ending. No, fair enough. A lot of people will argue that this isn't a good example, but I, I think it's a relatively good one, would be the the French film High Tension, where it very much portrays itself as being a, a, a classic slasher film mm. all the way through. And then at the end, you have a revelation that turns all of that on its head and shows that it's really much more of a psychological horror. And... I think that's a really good example of this. A film having a, a, a twist ending, I don't think, makes it psychological. I mean, you brought up The Usual Suspects earlier. No. And I don't think that kind of twist ending, where all your perceptions are upset, necessarily means it's psychological horror. But here, because in high tension it's related to the perceptions and the psychology of the protagonist, I think that very much does make it psychological horror. Straying away from film, but again to one that we've talked about, or at least I've talked about in the podcast before, a few episodes back, that's one of the more memorable twist endings for me, because it completely blindsided me going all the way through the book, is uh, Michael Slade's Headhunter. Because bar the coda, the last, literally almost the last couple of pages which are bolted on, which are kind of elaborating on something that was a throw, literally thrown away in a few scenes before right down to the last line of the main last chapter of the book is a complete gut punch that I just did not see that coming and I, I don't want to spoil it but it is such a great twist reveal that you mm. then go back through the whole book and go why the hell didn't I see this coming without giving spoilers when you got the reveal did you feel like you should have seen it coming or was was it flagged through the book oh yeah yeah that's the best kind right yeah I mean, again without going over the exact device that's used there is a particular literary well not even literary a linguistic device which is used which hmm. i as the reader i think fell into the trap everyone is going to fall into when they read this and that they're not going to pick up on this particular choice of wording but it is even from the very first scene of which the killer because it's a book about trying to find who is the headhunter and from the very first scene they appear in it uses this device. And I had to go back and go back right the way to the beginning of the book. And of course, I don't thought, well, yeah. why, why the hell didn't I pick up on this? Yeah, that's an art, I think. Because it, 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 having a, a total surprise at the end, well, I don't think there's much value unless you can go back and do what you just said, go back and see. Oh my God, that was, now I look at it again, I can see that was there in the first scene, it was there in the second scene, mm -hmm. it was referred to then. Now I look at it and it's kind of obvious that all those things are flagged up because then when it hits, it's like all those little cogs fall into place in your brain and you go, oh my God, this was all happening all the time. Whereas if it's just something that was never referred to or never flagged or signaled anywhere in the thing and suddenly everything's different, it's like, well, how was I supposed to see that coming? Mm -hmm. It's almost less of a surprise. But I'm not sure that that's what I call psychological horror. Just because 
where you've got that kind of twist or revelation at the end and you realise you've been seeing things from the wrong angle, that's a, as you said, Matt, that's a literary device, that's a narrative device. But unless it's related to the characters or the protagonists particularly having some revelation that their perceptions of themselves or reality has been wrong all this time, then I don't necessarily see that as psychological horror. It's just a twist ending. I think it's an aspect that can be part of psychological mm -hmm. horror. But I think it's also the implications that that reveal has, because, again, steering very, very close to the line on spoilers, the main character who's delivering the dialogue at the end of the book, when he's referring to, basically, he's got the killer is right in front of him, but he doesn't realise that this person in front of him is the killer in the book, and that this is someone that he's trusted and that he knows and has worked with all the way through this and is this close to suddenly realise to kind of catching the person he's been looking for. And the implication is that, no, they're just going to go free and they're never going to get caught. Is that kind of gut punch? Well, we're going to take a break from all this psychological madness and uh, have some uplifting messages for you to listen to. So, yeah, have a break, grab a cuppa, and we'll be back right after these messages. There is rampant disease in the Hooverville. Someone get the dark. The Apocalypse Players present Bleak Prospect by Scott Dawood. Sense of dizziness comes over me again. <laughs> my hand, my hand. Is there anyone you'd like to speak to? His hand has crumbled in yours. <gasps> Every time he moves, another part of him sheds away and crumbles. In your dream, Nancy, they didn't have any faces part of a season of nameless horrors from the Apocalypse Players. Here we go. Allons-y! <laughs> what a wonderful evening! I don't want to hear the song again. Well, there's blood splatter, right? Come to Paris, they said. It'll be romantic, they said. It wasn't a great idea. <laughs> I am sweating. I'm gorgeous. Flaking skin. The payment is blood. I love this guy. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Have you visited our Redbubble store? We have t-shirts, stickers and all sorts of goodies that you or someone you know might like. Check it out. Just click on the merchandise link on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. And we're back, about to delve back into the madness of psychological horror. Brace yourself. Let's talk about what we think some of the finest examples of the genre are, or at least some of our favourite examples and what makes them good examples of, of psychological horror. So one that just came to mind, because a couple of things we had on our um, list that we didn't get onto was a resolution that may ultimately be positive for the protagonist as they learn to make peace with what they've learned and about facing fears. Hmm. And again, I mean, I'm not sure if it fits into the horror genre, I would say it does probably, is Antichrist. Mm. And there's some pretty horrific stuff in that. Oh, God, yeah. But it is, to me, the, the main protagonist does go through the grinder and at the end she does come out with a, a sort of new realisation, I think, about herself and her role. I'd definitely say that is psychological horror, that, you know, we get some... Um, unreliable narration sort of realizations about her child and uh, i don't think we see the child but we just see photographs of of them and their 
and their feet. I'll just say that much. So it's just, it's a Cabin in the Woods movie. It's, it's her and her husband locked away in the woods in a kind of pressure cooker environment, which should be idyllic, but is far from. And is a hard watch, I will say. It's a hard watch, not only from the psychological aspects of it, but there's also some visceral unpleasantness and gore in there as well, which are going to be very difficult to watch. And sex. Yeah. How about you, Matt? Looking particularly at the IMDb Top 100 Psychological Horror Films list, there was one that stood out there automatically to me, thinking, yeah, this is obviously one of my favourite films, and you can definitely view it through the lens of psychological horror. But it's also one I realise that I've talked about a reasonable amount on the podcast before, and that's Angel Heart. Hmm. Hmm. Rather than go over old ground and uh, praise the film that I love so much, looking a little bit down the list, I did find another one that I think is a good example of this. And that's The Dead Zone, the Cronenberg film from back in 1983. And again, having read the book of that before I watched the film, Mm. the book especially has more on the psychology of the main character, the uh, Christopher Walken character. I can't remember uh, the character's name off the top of my head. It's Johnny Smith, isn't it? Yeah, actually, I think Johnny is right, yeah. I seem to remember there being a kind of running joke about his name just being John Smith. It's like 40 years since I've read it, so... But I'm pretty sure that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do remember the main passage from the book that really stuck with me, which again amplifies the psychology of the character, is that once he shakes Stilson's hand and can see the role that he will have in the upcoming nuclear apocalypse, that he starts going through this, not self-judgmental, but self-assessment of, if I had the ability to go back in time, would I kill Hitler? Am I capable of doing this? And that build-up to him then being able to try and assassinate him before he pushes the button. It's a good kind of character study and the really the inner workings of his head trying to build up to, am I capable of doing this? Ultimately, I think the film does it maybe slightly better because it doesn't dwell on that section. The book, the book has a huge section that it dedicates to this whole, if I could go back in time, could I kill Hitler vibe. The film does it a lot more succinctly and has more of a gut punch when Stilson just grabs the kid and holds him up to uh, put the baby literally up as a human shield. Mm. And... There's lots of other little bits that are peppered all the way through it. The visions that he has of like the kid in the burning nursery, some of the visions he's had of the serial killer subplot that you get a brief glimpse of in the film. I think he touches the mother's hand and says, like, you knew all the time, you knew it was your kid that was doing this. Just those little bits that are peppered all the way through it are not egregious, not sledgehammer tactics, but they're quite subtle in a way that compared to a lot of other devices we've talked about. But yeah, I, I was really fond of that. I'd say I love the book and the film. I'd say the absolute master of psychological horror was Shirley Jackson. As I've mentioned on the podcast before, I'm a huge fan of her work. The Haunting of Hill House is still, I'd say, my favourite horror novel. And that is definitely a psychological horror book. It looks at first blush to be a ghost story, but whether or not there are any ghosts in it is debatable, but it is certainly a novel about the effects of this hideous house on the psychology of the people there investigating it. But the book of hers that I'd actually choose as my favourite example of psychological horror would be We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which you could make arguments that it's not really horror, but 
it's close enough that I feel comfortable including it. And it's the story of this rather unusual teenage girl, Mary Catherine Merricat Blackwood, who is living with her family in this rundown house and who is having to deal with the intrusions of the outside world and their very secluded existence. And she is a classic, unreliable narrator, one who is perhaps deluding herself at times, but certainly outright lying to us as the readers, and whose psychology is broken in unusual ways. She has this obsessive need to perform these rituals, these sort of sympathetic magic rituals to protect the house and protect the environment. And she sees things in a very sort of fairy tale kind of way that makes the revelations that come later in the book about what she's done and her family's true history and so on all the more chilling as they come up. And I think as a a psychological character study and a piece of psychological horror fiction, it's it's way up there. It's sort of inspired an almost subgenre of itself. There are two of my other favourite books, which are very much echoes of it that are deliberate. I don't want to say pastiches, but 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 definitely draw upon it very heavily. One is The Wasp Factory by Ian Banks, which you could almost see as being a retelling of We Have Always Lived in the Castle, and again deals with family secrets and self-delusions, and Frank, the protagonist, is a very damaged young person who does absolutely terrible things, but at the same time sort of couches it in ways that allow us to empathise with his situation. It's a, a really remarkable piece of writing that I think, <laughs> from my experience of having recommended it at a book club once and just seen the reactions of horror <laughs> from everyone who read it, it's not a book for everyone. It goes to mm. some very, very dark places. I've tried reading it and I didn't get very far, I will admit. Even for a small book, <laughs> that was it still sat on my shelf, almost completely unread. Yeah, it's it's intense. And there's another book, uh, Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay, which has got a very different premise, but has got a lot in common with We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which again has got an unreliable narrator as the protagonist, but uses the, the hook of a family dealing with one of their children perhaps being possessed and deciding to deal with it by turning to reality television and getting a film crew in to make a documentary about it and do the exorcism live on camera and and it all goes spectacularly wrong it's, it's a great book and i highly recommend it but again it's a book that seems to be one thing but through the techniques of psychological horror reveals itself to be something very very different yeah, so talking of books, one that springs to mind in this kind of area, has just sprung to mind as you were talking, would be The Glamour by Christopher Priest. Oh, yeah. Uh, that came out in 84, and um, yeah, I've not read it since soon after it came out, so my memory is a bit hazy, but I remember it frightening me. It's not a horror novel, but I remember it, it, it frightening me. It pretty 
quickly becomes apparent that the uh, I think somebody shows him how to do it. The the main protagonist learns about the glamour, and it's basically the ability to become invisible, to pass without being noticed. And that sounds pretty cool, but there are things that happen in the book that that show you maybe it's not quite so cool. And um, and I also seem to recall there's quite a twist in it, but I can't remember what the twist is. But I want to read it again. So that's uh, the glamour. I mean, I read the glamour and the uh, the affirmation, which was the book that preceded it, pretty close together. So they're a bit muddled up in my mind, and they're both kind of on a similar sort of area. But I mean, a lot of Christopher Priest's work, I would say, works in that sort of psychological. I don't know, thriller or sort of uh, sort of layers of strangeness and not being quite sure what's going on so yeah some interesting stuff yeah he's definitely an author who while i wouldn't classify as being a horror writer definitely writes the kind of stuff that would appeal to people who like horror thinking to books there's another favorite of mine which comes up i mean everyone goes towards science of the lambs but of the hannibal lecter books i think red dragon is by far the superior of the uh Mm. whatever the word is for four books in a series quintolid uh, or quartet but yeah i think the, the first one is the best one i think it's a fantastic book what makes it better would you say lecter is only the kind of a side character really he's he's very much in the background and fulfills a small part in the book but the main crux of it is looking at the the toll it takes on will graham the the manhunter in um, to give it michael mann's mm. renaming of the story the impact it has on his psychology, trying to put himself into the mind of a killer that is performing some very heinous acts and trying to understand why he's doing it. And then about halfway through, flipping completely and then going into the head of said killer, so Francis Dollarhide, that it's showing this is what has fucked you up from such a young age to become the monster you are now. And it's showing how much that, to say that, the toll of Graham putting himself into Dollarhide's mind to become this figure—it's yeah, it's a, it's a great two-part character study for me. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic book if you haven't read it. Oh, interesting. Well, I think Bill Graham's a fantastic character from that perspective because his greatest strength is his greatest weakness, which is his ability to empathise. That slowly unravels and destroys him. What makes him such a good investigator is what makes him a broken person. Mm-hmm. So are there any particular techniques that either of you use to try to bring these elements of psychological horror into your games? Hmm. It's not something I've attempted, at least deliberately before, a bit like what I was talking about on the previous episode about uh, trying to try and bring tension deliberately to a table. And I think it's probably even more difficult than that because it is something that I think lends itself more to a literary device than it does to a, an instrument you can use at the game table. Mm. Unless you've deliberately crafted pre-gens for a, for a particular scenario and you have some very almost scripted encounters, I think it can be a very difficult thing to pull off. I, I can see it working incredibly well for that kind of penny drop moment where you have some of these realisations and revelations that happen on a personal level for the players. But it's very difficult to pull off on first glance. Yeah, I don't think most people set about when they run their game, they're not necessarily thinking, oh, I'm going to make a psychological horror 
or I'm going to build tension or whatever. You just do it, don't you? You just you just GM the game. And now if you were to get into analysing your games, Matt, and, and spend time and, I don't know, well, you do record some, but, you know, if you were to study them, I'm sure there are things that you do to do all of these mm-hmm. things. You Just I think we just don't overanalyse it. And I think, you know, maybe we're better off for not doing that. But I would certainly agree with you that if you're doing it in the mode of the kind of the twist or the, the unreliable narration, things like that, then you can do it, but it can take a lot of planning and a lot of preparation and it can pay off really well. Thinking of, say, self-analysation and recording stuff, I was actually recorded a game session last night at the time of recording where mm. there was maybe a device that I used in there that maybe actually partly threw it in just for shits and giggles, but it had a nice little effect on one of the players who said, like, he gave himself chills when he was thinking about some of the stuff he was saying. That there was a particular scene in the scenario where they stood at the top of the stairs to a cellar leading down. And they've realised that it's been propped up and barred from the inside. And one of them just says, hang on a minute, what if this person did break in the house is still down in the basement after all? And I got a rift on this. I referred to it a few times as you hear him and his paranoia ticking over this in the corner to one of the other players. That they all made listen checks to see if they could hear anything down in the basement. The one who was the most paranoid, of course, failed his listen role. So I could have played <laughs> by going, no, there's just there's kind of the sound of your own heartbeat. Mm-hmm. There's kind of the sound of your own breathing that's kind yeah. of completely overriding every sensory input and you just can't hear anything down there. And the person next to him that got an extreme success say, yeah, apart from him heavy breathing and panicking, say him and his paranoia, there is absolutely nothing down in that basement. It is completely silent. There is not a single hint that it could be a living person down there. Of course, he then riffed off that and was like, I can hear, I can hear something down in the corner, uh, <laughs> gesturing for the person who had failed to go down. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, players are going to embrace that stuff too, aren't they? Which is, yeah. which is cool. And of course, Call of Cthulhu has kind of got this built in with the whole mechanics for delusions. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of in there to build, I guess, psychological horror. But I don't think you even need to wait for delusions. Throwing those differences of perception in there, I think, is a great technique. It's something I do quite a lot as well, which is just trying to build up that sense of paranoia between the characters by someone noticing something that someone else Mm. didn't or perhaps having different interpretations of each other's... uh, Or it's just sort of saying perhaps... A player character does something unexpected in the way that they deal with an NPC or something like that. And just turning around to one of the other players and just sort of saying, well, why do you think he did that? Just plant those seeds in there, give them something to work with. That's, I think, a surprisingly effective technique. There are lots of little things like that you can do in your narration as a GM. Just introducing those subtle elements of doubt... I'd love just dealing with the limited perceptions of the player characters rather than describing objective reality, describe the things that they're seeing and hearing. So, yeah, it can just be something simple like, yeah, did you hear the floor books creak upstairs? I mean, that may just be the house settling. Mm. If it happened so quickly, yeah, it's probably nothing, right? It's probably nothing. Or you think he looked at you oddly there for a moment, but you know, he looked away again. But yeah, again, there's probably nothing to it. Just get them to doubt their character's perceptions. Yeah, I think that's the thing, because there's the character and there's the player. And you can be feeding stuff to one or the other. 
it may have already become apparent that something is true to the player, but if you can sort of lay it into their character, then can't think of a good example of this. But um, you know, sometimes character perception and player perception are two different things. And if you've got really good players, they'll seize upon that dramatic irony yeah. between what they've realised as a player and what their character's perceiving. If you've got players like that at your table, you're in for a good time. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where people might stumble across it, or just letting people know should this topic come up. However you get the good word of Jackson out there, we would be grateful. Okay, well that wraps up psychological horror. I feel I've got a bit better grasp of what it means now. As Matt said at the start, I think it's still a bit of a woolly term, but all these genre things are really. Yeah, genre is an artificial construct that is used primarily for marketing. What do you think, Matt? Does it feel less woolly now? Bits, but I still think it's there's a lot of blur and overlap with other areas that making something stand mm. out specifically on its own as being psychological horror, I still think is quite a a difficult thing to do. I think it's there's, as I say, it's like the large Venn diagram that is just the point where a whole load of stuff intersects. Okay, well, you've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.